Hiya. Welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment, and zero carbon goals. Thank you for joining us once again. Um, this week with John Bagley. He is Director of Technical Risk and Compliance at Countrywide Surveying Services. So broadly, he's top boy when it comes to property valuation. John is vastly experienced in the sector. He's been a, a surveyor, services manager, valuer, ombudsman, um, poacher, gamekeeper. He's worked at RICS. He's worked at property businesses like estate agents. He's worked within the, the banking sector. So he's got a really good perspective on how all of the different market forces are affected by the construction trade itself and how they are affecting the construction industry. We were particularly interested in speaking with him because we'd seen him quoted in a couple of articles within a mortgage publication. And it seems significant that if those guys are paying attention to sustainability within the built environment, I don't know, someone might be shifting. I mean, we know something is shifting. It's just taking long. Anyway, I'll stop bleating on. Um, all the usual things, please share. Uh, I'm sure I say that at the end, so I won't belabor the point here. Uh, join the ACAN, join the ACB, join the IGBC, do better. And if you want to talk to us about any of these issues, if anyone out there is looking to introduce more sustainability or decarbonisation into the way they're working, give us a shout. Like we're helping a whole bunch of people through the consultancy at the moment. We're always happy to talk, even if it doesn't come to any work. Right, that's enough of that. Enjoy the podcast. Thanks for listening. Cheers. All right, so um, today, uh, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about uh, sustainability, the built environment, and zero carbon goals. Um, I might have already said that, though, by the time we get to this point. Anyway, we are, Jeff and I are here today. Alex is away uh, off into the continent somewhere. He's been off a lot recently, actually, hasn't he? Yeah, he has, actually. Anyway, so, yeah, uh, we'll apologise on his behalf, John. Uh, I'm sure he did want to be here. I'm sure he uh, did. Uh, yeah. not, not all jealous, sat here in a very rainy Warrington at the moment. He's probably off eating cheese somewhere. Yeah. Alex well, is, you know. I think he's uh, he's in a rush, probably late, going picking up his son before they okay. head off for a train and blah, 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 go through all that palaver. You know what it's like, Jeff, travelling with kids. Um, yeah. Anyway, right, so we are here today with John Bagley. Uh, he's Director of Technical Risk and Compliance for Countrywide Surveying Services. Yeah, thank you for joining us, John. Yeah, thank you for asking me. Thank you very much. Well, the reason why we asked you on is because I saw an article in which you were quoted in, I mean, the uh, <laughs> an obtuse publication, Mortgage Introducer, which was... Uh, Ostensibly, uh, it was about how energy efficiency measures are increasingly important. And seeing this positioned with a degree of prominence in a mortgage-focused publication seemed significant to me in terms of how this issue was being praised by the lending industry and the implications this might have for all sorts of other areas. Because, I mean, Jeff has told me off for saying this too frequently, but, you know, it's my belief that 
The only way we're going to change anything about the energy efficiency of buildings, particularly within the residential market, is if the asset value comes to be affected by energy performance. Because at the moment, it's the the market that's overheated and the, the homes are, I mean, the heated doesn't really matter. So I reached out to, to Matthew, um, Matthew Cumber, MD, who I met at a, a, an event up in Scotland with your colleagues, RV, uh, Donaldson Gibson. Uh, shout out Jonathan. Aya. He was at the forum yesterday. Um, yeah, so you're the guy, aren't you? Within countrywide surveying services. Very kind, very kind of me to say. Yeah, I think. Uh, you're the guy, yeah. That's, the that's guy, cool. very, very kind. Yes, I'll, I'll kind of remember that and focus on that. Um, yeah, it, it is it is a fascinating topic, isn't it? The whole energy efficiency, the built the built environment, and it's been spoken about now for it feels like a long time. Um, but in in reality, the article you've you've mentioned was you know how, the, how do you link the energy efficiency of a building uh, into pounds, shillings, and pence? So how much is somebody prepared to pay for something if it has increased green green measures? And there's kind of almost two 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 pots here in, in, in my sort of valuation mind, which is is somebody prepared to pay more for having A, B, or C or A, B and C measures, or Conversely, does does an asset become worth less because it doesn't have it? So it, there's almost two sides of possibly the same coin. But uh, would a property go backwards in value because it hasn't been improved, rather than somebody prepared to pay more than the the tone the tone of values? But is what you are beginning to see now is is a topic that's getting mentioned far far more and more. Uh, I think consumers are getting more and more alert and aware of the energy efficiency of of the building they're buying. And if you look at the information that's on Rightmove, you have the EPC. Clearly, there's a, a regulatory requirement to have the EPC anyway. But you know, people are searching for the EPC ratings. People are searching for the green measures on on a property. And I think it's beginning to have an impact on the buying decision, onto whether you buy 44 Smith Street or you buy 46 Smith Street. The kind of $69 million question is, would you be prepared to pay more as a consequence of that? Or is it, does it just make two similar, broadly similar properties, one more appealing than the than the other? But yeah, it, it's gaining traction for sure. Um, it's gaining traction within the lending community as well. And that's kind of the basis of the of the article. We're saying, you know, how much are lenders beginning to look at this? And where's the lender's regulatory sort of landscape taking them as well in what they need to do to be lending against better housing stock and i suppose conversely with that you, you don't want to then create a big problem with the legacy housing stock you've got because you know we have an aged housing stock in the uk versus certainly other other, other nations and your, your policy direction policy policy decision making needs to be quite careful about um, making decisions about an asset now which is great if you're building from now but actually does that have an unforeseen consequence on the on the ex- existing built environment and um you know being heavily involved in cladding anybody who knows me will know that i'm going to mention the word cladding but if you look at the rule set which was brought in post grandfather which was you know you've got cladding therefore take it away which is fine but you've got thousands of properties which are affected by cladding. And so, again, your policy making has to be joined up, has to be coherent, needs to be very sort of considerate about, um, yeah, impact on not just going forward, but also looking backwards as well. It's been a similar sense. issue recently with spray foam insulation. Um, and uh, I'm sure you're aware of that. Uh, yeah. You know, um, banks, um, 
not not be willing to lend. I think is that the case on properties that are spray foam or insured, or it's not possible to get insurance in some cases. Well, it's yeah. lacking the certification, isn't it? Yeah, I think spray spray foam is actually it's a really sort of relevant topic because it, it's in the here and now. You know, we looked why was why did spray foam emerge in in the residential houses? Well, years ago, it was associated really with a really tired roof, the old slate roof, and you spray it on the other side of it, and it did. It was more about sort of fixing a broken roof than it was about sustainability. Um, but then, whereas now it's more about sustainability than it is about fixing a broken roof. <laughs> but but then, are you putting it in the right place in the roof using the right materials, which doesn't then impact on the on you know, you've, it's what you need to be careful of is that you have this sort of package of measures for a, for a, for a house, but are you inadvertently causing unforeseen problems with? With the with the fabric of the building by putting something on it, and that that's probably where the spray foam question debate is about. It's about is it the right spray foam for the right property, yeah. the right type which breathes. I mean, you could go into the technical degree, here, but I know. Uh, and and has it been applied in the right manner by yeah. the right person? Well, it depends. Yeah, exactly, because it's being sold um, probably fairly disingenuously a lot of the time, um, and there probably are applications for it where where it's acceptable in some ways we took a position in the magazine a few years ago um after publishing an article on off-gassing persistent off-gassing or particularly nasty voc associated with birth defects and male fertility reductions coming from samples of spray foam um in a u.s national institute of science and technology uh study um on, on spray foams uh, we took a position that we we wouldn't be willing to to advertise it in the magazine anymore because of of of, of those concerns, and that's separately again from the whole kind of moisture issue. You know, um, it's raw. It's another one of these little areas where you just feel like you know within the industry, buildings are complicated things. You know, uh, um, and there are such things as building physics, and we need to make sure that that there's a, a proper understanding of that uh, informing the approaches that we take, rather than just say aiming for a good EPC score um, and uh, and hoping that, you know, I mean, you, you hope that building regulations and, uh, and so on will, 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 will protect you. But yeah, uh, there are gaps, unfortunately, you know. Yeah, you're right. And it is about, it's about the right measure at the right time for the right property as well. So yeah. you know, this, years ago, there was a rush for cavity wall insulation. And obviously, there's a lot of funding for that. But then you started to see cavity wall insulation putting the wrong properties in, in the wrong locations, which then inadvertently causes problems with the fabric of the building. Yeah, so you can almost extrapolate the the spray phones to a whole load of measures, really, where um, in isolation they have merits and they have the plus points, but put in the wrong way by the wrong person at the wrong time can have you know, really quite considerable consequences to occupy and for building fabric as well. So, yeah, you're right. It is about making sure that we're using the right measures at the right time. But equally, I think one of the things about spray foam, using that as, a, as an example, still is you know, to get to a position where the housing stock is more energy efficient than it currently is, then we do need to be embracing new technologies and we do need to be embracing new forms of construction. And if we keep yeah. saying we don't like it because of, yeah. then you're never going to move forward because with the current you know, cavity brick and block, you're never going to achieve the energy efficiency we need to achieve by the current sure. building techniques as well. So there's there's a bit of an op- open-mindedness re- required to, to, to move forward. But the other side of that is you need to have confidence that the measures are right for the buildings and have been 
suitably tested for the UK's climate. I've that I've seen certification for wonderful buildings, yeah. uh, and it comes across it's been certified by the by one of the European bodies, which is fantastic. But then it's been certified for a, for a build in Sweden, which has a completely different climate to the UK. So yeah. you know you've got to make sure that your certifications fit, fit for purpose as well. Um, I think it might be useful to get a sense of because uh, you've you've worked your way through being a surveyor to working within uh as an ombudsman i believe mm-hmm. yeah. uh you've gone through the the valuation line of work where it's more targeted surveying and now you're sitting in this vaunted position as director of technical risk and compliance which is like the macro part i suppose assessing how valuation works and mitigating risk do you want to give us a bit of uh sense of what your role is and a bit of the the background that that led you to this position yeah i mean i start i started out many 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 years ago it now it now feels in a estate agency so um sort of residential survey on val has been has been my 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 lifeblood and there's a there's a bit of a story to why i started in a state agency and it, and it, and, it, and it kind of a it relates to being in a brass band but i can i won't bore you with that with that story <laughs> but, um, and, and from and from that i went into to be a child surveyor um and moved to be the surveyor's ombudsman um and then from that uh working at rhs as valuation director for uk and europe um and now with control surveyors technical risk and um and compliance that so the it's 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 a property dominated career for sure um poacher turned gamekeeper feel as i've sort of jumped back over the fence a few times um but yeah and what what's my role now? It is about the uh, supporting the. We've got around four hundred and fifty surveyors supporting the the, te- the technical knowledge. Um, as you say, mitigating risk as as well. But you know, use mitigating risk, but in in a in in a way which is proportionate and uh, ensures that as a business you are still you are still doing the business you need to do, but protecting your interests as much as you, as you possibly can. And you know the the whole topic of you know, really the base of today sustainability. At the RICS in my time there as evaluation director was was really beginning to 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 gain gain traction and in the last two and a half years at Countrywide it, you know that that sort of trajectory has continued and I would say intensifying really but yeah sort of a residential survey and property career spanning since 1980 late 80s 1988 I think it was but, wow. but I won't talk about the brass band connection but. Yeah, well, perhaps we'll get to that at the end. No, no, no. I mean, I didn't know Warrington was famed for its brass band. <laughs> well, it's, it, it had one anyway, and I was in. All right. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> right. So we'll trail that. Maybe that'll be a post <laughs> I still got to be caught somewhere in the house, but I wouldn't play it for you. So, so. When we had Robin McAlpine on, he regaled us with a... a, a a fight over a bottle of Buckfast in a Newsy uh, story, <laughs> which couldn't fit within the body of the podcast, so we saved it for <laughs> a, a hidden extra post-outro music. Um, what I'm interested in is, because we've we've talked about uh, residential uh, surveying as if you're dealing with uh, house buyers rather than, like a big chunk of the business that you do is with the lenders. So it's the people who hold the the householder's mortgage debt as an asset themselves. And when we interviewed Stuart Little just before Christmas of IRT surveys, he he told us of his experience with the lenders who are now increasingly concerned that if 
Things like energy efficiency and sustainability aren't addressed now. That's going to affect the the value of the asset against which the debt is held. So I'm really curious as to how much, how great a specter sustainability is uh, uh, over the uh, the industry now, particularly your part of the industry. Yeah, it's um, it's big actually. It's big. It, it it's it's a topic that I would say every lender that we we deal with, it's a topic that is spoken about. It's a topic that we discuss on every time we have our 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 meetings, and it's it's about how do you how do you lend against the the safest residential asset you you can but in in a way that isn't then disproportionately affecting those least able to improve their properties as as well i mean if you look at it from a purely val- a purely valuation perspective then you know the question is are people paying more for greener properties and where people actually aren't paying more for them per se should the value be adding money on to the property because it's green that or should should they be discounting it um that's one sort of big debate going through discounting the profession yeah that because it's brown sorry not not green okay um, wondering. <laughs> just, so this, this don't say otherwise they'll be, they'll be quite i don't know if it's a hobbit house yeah 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 which they're worth less but they um, but then then the other the other kind of part of the conversation is well if they you know, when we look at climate change and we look at sustainability and the, the the different ways the weather patterns are changing and different patterns of rainfall and coastal erosion and rising sea levels, then you know in the sort of the, the wider context, if the built environment doesn't start to emit less emissions, then are you going to be lending and valuing in areas and pockets of property which will be worth less, not because of their green measures, their green measures directly, but because the whole climate change uh, climate change change uh, will start to affect the ability for buyers to buy and want to buy properties in coastal locations and locations which are going to be affected by flooding more so than they aren't affected by flooding now so there's almost kind of three or four points to to, to the question and in isolation you could say well let's, this is just a valuation question so therefore does the comparables reflect a greater price pound shillings and pence for 34 smith street Yes and no is the answer, but actually, in in the energy efficiency of the built environment, which is probably one of the biggest emitters of the country, then if we don't start to improve the housing stock, and if we don't start to to sort of get to the point where we've got lower emissions and therefore climate change slows down, then you know, there are probably parts of properties of the UK where it's going to be great, more greatly impacted by climate change issues than they, than they currently are, and I think that's kind of the modelling from a lender's perspective. You know, you're looking at that and you're looking at the the direct valuation implication then also how much of from a valuation professional's perspective are you are you should have because valuation is very sort of backward looking it yeah. looks at evidence of transactions that have already happened but actually when we're looking at, at the greenness of a building should the valuer be saying, you know, actually, this has a b c d and e uh, and therefore we know there's regulatory change coming down the tracks um, and we know that's going to happen by X date. So therefore, should the asset be actually genuinely be worth more because of that? Uh, or equally, as it doesn't just said, if you, if it's more brown than green, then do you start to get to a point where there's a discount from that? And there's no real answer to that at the moment, but it, it, it's it's a bit of a thesis question that the profession is beginning to wrestle with. And I think the lender community is beginning, is beginning to wrestle with it as well. In an Irish context, um, we've seen 
the interest, uh, the finance sector starting to drive things now, even in the residential sector, with in terms of environmental, social, and governance or ESG. Yes. Um, whereby some of the banks have started offering, some of the, the biggest banks have started offering uh, lower interest finance, uh, mortgage finance uh, for new homes, for instance, um, or for any homes, based on the energy rating of the building. Um, and and um, and one of the banks uh, started uh, um, part, partnering with the Irish Green Building Council to look at a broader sustainability rating for the buildings as well. So that could have a very different pull, you know, in terms of moving away from the historic stuff just towards, well, you know, here and now we cannot get the, you know, uh, the, 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 the repayments we want. We can't get a good deal on the property. You know, so it'd be interesting to see how quickly that starts to impact things. Yeah, it is. And it's kind of that carrot and stick, isn't it? So if you if you know that if you buy an EPCB property, your interest rate is going to be, you know, 0.3% lower, say. Um, and then also because your heating bills are going to be lower, does that filter through to the, afford- the affordability calcs? Then suddenly that property becomes a much better proposition than one that isn't in that camp. But then, are you another thought though, isn't it? Are, are you then just re- rewarding the already energy efficient buildings? Whereas the journey we need to get onto is well, if you've got an FG or even E, we've got to bring those properties up to C to get to the point where they're more energy efficient. So there's a real sort of fine line to tread there between. Well, yeah. yeah. Is the argument there or not? That uh, if you're if you've got an existing property and you're thinking you put it on the market, bloody do it up before you sell it. There is that, but who's got the money to do that? Because we were so we were at that webinar the other day, Jeff, and there was a, a discussion between uh, deep retrofit and light retrofit. And the purists always say deep retrofit's the only way because you're only gonna you're only gonna have to redo the work when you try and do it properly. But the trouble is, who's got the money to to do the work, to decant themselves, to anticipate rising prices, to all of that. So your point there, Jeff, that the lenders drive this market. I mean, this is the truth. The lenders drive property values because they enable, so thinking about it as just buying and selling housing assets, like it's the lenders that determine whether the the property can be bought at the price that the buyer wants to buy it at. That's it. It's up to them, no one else whether they're doing desktop evaluation or actual uh, in-person surveys. Yeah. It's up to them to do that. Now, what they can do to, to mitigate this sort of stuff is if you're beginning to incorporate something like energy efficiency in, like, all right, so you can you can incorporate an appraisal of EPCs. But then there is also, there's another layer which, so this was something that Stuart Little also alluded to, the opportunity to do retrofit works, to borrow money to apply retrofit works to a property to increase its energy efficiency, so either as an add-on to a mortgage or as a, a standalone debt from the same lenders, because that's a question of risk management on their part. Yeah, and what you know, as a as a homeowner, let let's say you you buy the property, so you know it's EPC, whatever it's going it's going to be, or, or it is. So, well. If it's often, let's say it, 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 it's E, well, 
that that's fine. But then you left you left with an EPC document, which kind of tells you what you might be able to do to get get it to a better point. But wouldn't you want to know actually what does that retrofit look like? What exactly can I do to the building uh, and get the advice from a qualified professional to do that? And then have somebody who could who coordinates that work with you. So you you go on the journey, which is you're buying, you're mortgage financing, you're retrofitting, you're signed off, and then you have absolute confidence and certification from the contractor who's done the work that if something does go wrong you've got redress as well so you've got this big wraparound start to end journey of i've bought it i've improved it i've got confidence that the work's being done at the right time by the right piece people even that i have that certification from a qualified contractor yeah i think that retrofit piece actually is is the next so it's, it's almost the missing link, isn't it? The missing link is that retrofit where you get the proper advice from the right person yeah. and you and you you can make an informed decision as well. There's some just something you said there to trigger the thought in my mind, which was it, it it's not necessarily it's what we are seeing a little bit of. It's not necessarily just well, I'm doing it because I'm going to improve my property. There's also a, almost a social responsibility viewpoint here as well, which is I need to improve my property because I need to do my part in the in the climate change conversation as well. So it's not necessarily just about capital asset gain, although that does help the argument for sure. But there's also that kind of social responsibility part of it as well. Yeah, and I think the broader sustainability too. I mean. Um... This gets very controversial very quickly, especially in a country like Ireland, where if you've ever visited or if you've ever flown over uh, Ireland, the countryside is kind of pockmarked by uh, by by bungalows and stuff all over the shop. You know, we've got we've got a very kind of loose planning system um, in the past, um, a lot of sprawl. Um, so you know, ideally, uh, you know, and I, I can't imagine a lender wanting to sign up for this, but. But then again, if, if they're following the likes of the Irish Green Building Council's uh, system, well, it, that takes account of location, the size of the property, and so on. You know, uh, if you're too car dependent, for instance. Um, um, I mean, it's funny. It's thinking about my mother-in-law. She lives in um, in Tinnahealy in, in 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 Wicklow, a uh, lovely part of the country. Herself and her partner, and their their site for the pair of them is almost. It's just a you know reasonable kind of reasonably sized bungalow, but the land that they're on, uh, which again is not massively oversized, probably about two thirds, I would say, of the of the land for the apartment building that I'm in, which has got 198, 199 apartments, you know, each with sort of three or four people. And if you're talking about two people versus, you know, it's, it's, it'll, be, it'll be hundreds, many hundreds of times more people um, you know, uh, and and we're not kind of living like sardines here. You know, there there are there's amenity around us as well. Admittedly, off you know around the apartment building, for instance, I'm not counting that land. You know. Yeah, and it's and it's you know we sort of focus on the energy efficiency, but then you've also got things like water consumption. So how many you know, what's the, what's the water consumption of of the building? And then if you look at just thinking of from a personal experience of having an electric car and having just just moved house, then. And suddenly you got questions about well the power to the garage isn't strong enough to charge the car. So, yeah, the, the so, so the actual the actual viability of the asset is is much more than just does it have the latest boiler. It, you know the whole sort of ESG sustainability of the building is it's bigger than that, isn't there? And it's it's about making sure that you 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 know that 
that all, all the facets of the building are exactly what you want it to be as well from a consumer's perspective and that, that filters through into your pounds, shillings and pence. Well, this is it. And John, um, when it comes to EPCs and stuff, um, how much does it matter uh, <laughs> if, if, the, if the racing is actually credible? And if we start to see, if, if we start to see a big correlation happening between, you know, uh, now post this or in the midst of this energy crisis, um, between people looking to buy low energy buildings, uh, pay more for low energy buildings and pay less for, for less energy buildings. And if we start to find out, uh, you know, you can just see the Daily Mail style stories uh, appearing of, um, uh, of uh, people I bought an A-rated home and uh, and it's bankrupted me. That kind of, you know what I mean? Um, uh, those kinds of stories. How, how much does it matter? And and uh, and, uh, and what what can we do about this? I suppose the yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, you know, it, it is down to the reliability of the basis of measurements, isn't it? So, well, whatever whatever you have, is it delivering for what it was intended to do? So, if you look when the EPCs were brought in, was it fifteen years ago? I can't quite recall when they first yeah. came in, but you know, they they came in for a, for a purpose, and and they've they've met that purpose. But actually, are they being used now for a completely different purpose from their in, intended in, in, in introduction? And I think that's part of the challenge here, isn't it? We are using the EPC now in the valuation journey. We're using it in the lending journey. We're using it to to make a decision on the viability of, of a building. Where was that the intended purpose of the process in whenever it first came in? I can't quite recall the exact date now, but you know, and. You're right. If you've got an, an EPC grade A, it, it will it will have ticked all the boxes in the assessment process for the for, for the A. But is that meaning actually you've got the super super cheap property to run and to heat and to power? It, it's kind of a hot horses for courses and whether the EPC is now uh, is it delivering what the market needs of it? I think that's kind of more 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 the question for me. Um, and there's a great article by one of the surveyors, and he and he he posed the question whether you know EPC was to, was brought in for a purpose. We're using it for a completely different purpose now. Uh, is it time that we revisited exactly how the EPC is is assessed, and does the methodology still work for the purpose we're using it for? And we're using it potentially for quite big decision making decisions here. So yeah. for lending, for valuation, for you know planning, for so on and so forth. Whereas you know, was that the purpose when it was first brought in? I don't think it was. I think well, it's we, more of a question of that. We did a two parter a few weeks back with Bill Bordas and Adrian Lehman about the the genesis of the EPC. Uh and uh, appraising its its singular inadequacy in front of the task that we, yes. we now see. The trouble is, like, can anyone with any position of power, can they be asked to do anything about it? Because, <laughs> like, if you look at the, the, the property market currently, it is barely being affected by these issues. Like, certainly, you know, I've got a podcast about sustainability in the built environment. And when it came to me making a decision to buy a property or not, like I barely looked at the EPC. Like I paid a little bit of attention and I asked about the energy efficiency of the property. But the people who I was asking, they could have told me anything. And I know the fallibility of the EPC. I know whatever it says, I'm going to have to do plenty of remediation work somewhere along the line. 
To be fair, I pay them. If, if I was in your position, I would pay very little regard to the EPC as well, but not for the reasons that you're talking about, you know? Um, well, what's your reasoning? Bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> in particular, with the existing buildings, because you've got an old house, you know, um, and um, uh, where you have uh, RD SAP being used rather than SAP, and you've got so many defaults being used, um, I'd have grave concerns about that. And I also, we've, we've an article in the new issue of the magazine, which I've been trailing for a while, it's just gone to print, um, on the uh, very anarchy subject of the thermal comfort assumptions in, in the calculations. So you know, if it's a G-rated house, people aren't going to be heating it in the way, the standardized way that, that your EPC assumes, because they won't be able to yeah. afford to. Yeah. If it's an A-rated house, um, people may have a much higher expectation of thermal comfort in those buildings, and therefore may be heating to a much higher level than the than the quite relatively miserly levels assumed in the EPC, you know? Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I, 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 there's information... The frustrating thing is, especially with new homes, there's information that's uh, that goes into the calculation of the EPC that is useful. You know, there is some actually an airtightness test, for instance, would be a good example of that. You know, but you don't get that. Um, so uh, that, that it, it's it's I would want to see the, the more detailed information, but there needs to be. I mean, the thing the concern I have here is that the EU. Uh, now, I'm sorry to mention the B word again, but um, I always will. I'm not that sorry. <laughs> uh, the, the EU is just uh, in the throes of uh, of updating the, the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, which framed all of this. And part of that is involving a, an entire recalibration of the energy rating system, uh, including... Uh, you know the, the the assumptions underpinning it. Um, so, because I think there's a recognition that it's not being fit for purpose up until now. Um, so, I don't know what the UK is going to do um, in these regards. I, I you wouldn't like to assume nothing because there is good work happening in terms of the net zero carbon standards and you know the future homes and so on. But I don't know. I, I need to to gel up on this. You know. Yeah, it's good. Good point about consistency across different countries, isn't it? Um, that wasn't oh. straight straight into the Brexit debate at all. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Brexit! I Brexit. thought it was black and tans. Sorry, sorry. Was it not Brexit? You meant after Biden? The B word. But yeah, I mean, yeah, and 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 it is about it, it is about consistency as well because it's certainly in the in the secured lending world. You know, you are. Hence, why valuation standards are consistent across 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 the world because you know, these loan books are, are bought and sold as well. So if you if you're going to have lending based on an EPC which has a different methodology, say in France versus versus the UK, you know what does that do to the to to the reliability of the of the valuation? More of a question yeah. than an answer, really. But that's an interesting one. Yeah. So, so what do the the people with the sway, the lenders, make of the EPC? Like. Is there anything you can divulge? Like uh, when you when you speak with these people, are they paying any heed to it, or is it a checkbox exercise? In the same way it was for the photographer who took the pictures of my flat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think um, he probably needs to speak to lenders directly. I think like like everybody else in the property food food chain, there's a there's a recognition that the EPC is. You know, it's the established mechanism by which we have to work to. And um, you know, whilst there are some doubters out there for sure, uh, we've, we've said it here. But uh, you know, that's the mechanism we have. So therefore, that's the mechanism we we will use in in the lending and the valuation journey. And 
you know, when we look at the regulatory framework, it's certainly in the in the bite of that world, in the in the minimum energy efficiency standards and your ability to create a tenancy or not not able to create a tenancy if you're F or G, then you know the EPC is quite powerful. It's you know what I do in this? If if I was operating and if I was selling property, for instance, um, um, you know, like in the state agents or whatever, um, but advertising it, I think that it's there's it's incumbent upon. Um, because of how much, as people start to to value this um, and, and vote with their feet based on things like the EPC, I think it's incumbent on the vendor to um, to contextualize it. I know when you're, they say, what is the Romulan line when you're explaining you're losing? Um, but, you know, to, in other words, to explain the assumptions that are going in to, to that EPC and say, look, it doesn't mean that it's, we're not saying it's without value. Um, uh, but uh, there are assumptions about uh, how you're heating the building, about about its standardized assumptions about the kinds of people in the building. You know, it's assuming that you're probably out working during the day, for instance. You know, um, so if you're working from home, very different. You know, it's it's making assumptions based on the size of the building or the number of bedrooms, or whatever it might be. You know, um, and. Uh, and and again, if you if you deviate from that quite a lot, if you like a warm house or if you like a cold house, um, these things they, they all have an effect, you know. And then of course there's the other kind of issues outside of people's control, like um, I don't know, uh, uh, a country being invaded and uh, and then energy prices going through the roof, you know. Um, it feels to me like these things all, you know, uh, maybe I'm trying to solve too many things here, but it feels like I would, you know. I can imagine a lot of very aggrieved people who uh, um, you could you could you could you could placate them, um, or you know, by explaining this is the most important purchase you're ever going to bloody make, right? Think about these issues, you know. I think it it is a trying to sort of compare it to the the Green Deal, the, the which clearly ill-fated process in in England, but in the UK and. You know, the that had the 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 gold the golden rule, which the Green Deal measure meant it would be cost neutral. But but actually, it was cost neutral to this sort of average family. Whereas in in reality, if you're a very high user of energy, you wouldn't see the savings you thought you would, and vice versa if you're a low user. Um, and it and I suppose it goes back to understanding the metrics, understanding what something's telling you, isn't there? And who who would you turn to as part of that? That's why you turn to your to your survey, you would turn to your estate agent, you'd turn to your solicitor, who are probably the three three bodies in the food chain who are there to give you the advice. So yeah, it's about understanding how it how it all pulls together. And the working for home thing as well, isn't it? Which where, you know, we've all been accustomed for years and years and years to go go to the office in winter. Then suddenly we're all heating our houses and realizing just how plus we have the sort of the the war and everything else that happened, which pushed the fuel prices up. Suddenly you recognize how important the energy efficiency of a building is because you know when you're facing some of the bills you're facing, it, it focuses the mind, doesn't it? Yeah. So I mean, in that light, do EPCs ever affect evaluation? Do they do they affect evaluation? Um um, there, there might be two answers to that because they will affect the rental market. They will in the buy to that space. They it's probably more binary in truth. It, it's either suitable or or it's not because you have the can or you can't create a tenancy. In the owner occupied world, does the EPC itself affect the valuation? I think the greenness of the building is affecting in certain cases people's decision to buy a property. I think just to pick up on your point before, did you look at the EPC before you bought? Well. You know, your residential property, there's so many 
component parts into your decision to buy it, isn't it? Um, yeah. You know, the schools, there's catchment areas, there's the south-facing gardens, there's 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 um, there's the pub around the corner. Maybe that's more about me than other people, but yeah, you know, there's a whole sort of list of decisions that you go through. And to some people, yeah, they will look at the EPC and they will say that I don't want a property that's going to be leaking and um, cold windows and and. All, all the rest of it. You know, I, I've just I've just moved house and my colleagues will be bored of me talking about it, but I've just moved, moved house and where I'm sat now was built in the 1830s. And were, were we buying this if it was an AD or G? We couldn't care less, to be quite honest with you, because you know, it, it had the grounds with it we wanted and we got our children into the school we wanted. If there was two similar properties together where one is A and one is E, for example, then probably you're going to go for the one that's A, aren't you? And then as that sticks starts to intensify where maybe we you know we start to pay more council tax we start to pay more other forms of taxation based on more stamp duty say because you've got an older more leaky property will that start to impact on people's decisions to buy that lower rating epc i suspect it will i suspect it will i'll, yeah. I'll be there now more no than yes but i wouldn't rule it out completely i think it's you probably see, kind of... back in 2000 and oh god it was years ago i think it's 2013 or something I don't know what they're called now. At least track of the change of the changing names of of uh, of government departments. What was the department of of energy and climate change? I think um, did a survey, a, a large survey of a big chunk of the UK housing market, where they looked at the EPC score and the sales price achieved. Um, and I think they controlled for other factors too. Where they were, they were, they were, I can't remember now, but where they were trying to to to, to um, make the properties comparable, you know, because obviously. You're going to be dealing with older homes with, with poorer ratings and newer homes with with with, with higher ratings in general. Um, and what they found from memory, and this was at a time when it was more of a buyer's market, you know, um, uh, was that generally there was a really clear correlation between the uh, the EPC score and the sales price cheap, except for London, because in London, <laughs> you pay whatever the hell you can, whatever piece of crap you can get your hands on, right? <laughs> and, that, and that's true, isn't it? When you when you say the, buy, the buyer's market, I mean, we're, we're in a slightly slower market now, but if you look at the housing market post-COVID, um, you know, has it been a, has it been a buyer's market or a, or a seller's market? So you, you, the impact of all the factors to determine the purchase price sort of changes. So in, in a slow market, maybe you, you can negotiate more or negotiate less. In a very strong market, then mm. you, you know you kind of you buy the property, don't you? Because mm. yeah, you know, they were on the market on a Monday, they were selling on a Monday. So therefore, could you? You could don't you have the choice, right? The choice. Yeah, you, you've got you've got to do it. You know, yeah. uh, you don't have the ability to express your your preferences you just buy uh, for the fear of missing out you know yeah i wonder whether there is well you mentioned cladding earlier in the conversation and i wonder if there are uh, if there's anything we could learn from that situation like if there are any implications for the housing and probably the retrofit market uh in that regard like, yeah uh, yeah i think there's a there's there's actually an interesting thing about the cladding and the EWS certificate. Whilst there's maybe a bias to say that I was involved in this, this, this development, but what what drove forward the need to have a building checked and certified and therefore if, I'm going to use the word dangerous carefully here, but with dangerous cladding on the outside, what drove the actual regulatory change was the fact that the lenders wouldn't lend against a building that had dangerous cladding. We've had 
40 years of building regulations with, in theory, being being checked and signed off and therefore shouldn't be built in a certain way. But what changed the world very, very quickly was the fact that to get mortgage finance, you had to know whether there was a flammable wall system on the outside of a building. Uh, and if it was, then you had to have that re- uh, remediated before you could have the mortgage finance. So if, if we sort of use that as, as an example of how you know, sort of good can come from a pretty awful situation, then the lenders have a really sort of big part to play in this. So if they start mm. to drive finance because of a energy efficiency of a building, then that will drive change in the in the positive. Uh, and the other parts of the cladding piece as well is around how it, it, it shone a spotlight in a negative way on the regulatory regime behind mm. the building of buildings. Um, and that sort of goes back to my comment sort of when we first started talking, it was around the you know, it's not just about putting a measure on a building, it's putting the right measure on the right building at the right time yeah. by the right people. So, mm-hmm. it, so what have we learned from the aftermath of Grenfell? Well, it's what we, we, we've learned, actually. It's not just about doing something, but it has to be done properly and it has to be using the right materials which are certified and the qualified person is competent to give the advice, gives the advice to the consumer or whoever the client is to make sure you don't inadvertently um, negatively impact the integrity of the building and you know whilst it's not a cladding sort of fire safety question it's what you don't want to do is to put a whole load of external wall insulation on a building which isn't suitable for that and then you get the all the obvious unintended consequences of, of negatively impacting the fabric of the building so yeah there's i think there's this will there's some learning points from a what has been a very difficult time for a lot of people but um yeah, there's, i think there's some there's some takeaways from that that you, that you can use elsewhere in the built environment and it is about it's about confidence isn't it it's confidence in the measures being put on your building because it's your house it's mm. your house you're living yeah. in, you're living in this it's the biggest thing you're ever going to buy it's not like a car where you can just part exchange it and give the problem to somebody else you know, this is your this is your your property this is where you live you want to be safe and you want to you want to make sure that whatever's done to your building does exactly what you expect it to do as well yeah it's a, it's a fascinating and difficult subject this and um the fear i have um, bear, I suppose the problem is when you've got the, uh, you know, the regulatory uh, checks and balances that are meant to be safeguards against the wrong things being done. When you've got them being gamed, and manipulated, um, uh, and undermined, uh, it's that's a very tricky situation, um, and it's a tricky situation. For, you know, it begs questions for me. And the, and the knee-jerk reaction, you know, it's obviously it's, a, it's it's critically important that that, uh, that you know uh, dangerous works are not permitted. But the fear I have sometimes is that um, you can find unless uh, the, the people who are assessing risk for these situations um, have a sufficient grounding in proper kind of building physics and evidence-based approaches, you'll get some really good systems which might seem risky to people. Um, especially they're different to, to what's been, been done historically for years, getting ruled out. Uh, um, and, um, and, you know, you could just see people, uh, for instance, uh, I know uh, architects are talking about the difficulty building in timber in, in London in particular now, uh, um, post-Grenfell. Um, and, uh, when, of course, there was no timber on Grenfell, you know, but, uh, you know, and, and that pushing us towards more kind of high body carbon builds uh, approaches you know um for no good reason necessarily so yeah it's tricky it is it is isn't it and you know you you 
yeah, I'd, you, you, and you can see why currently sort of the post the post the grandfather environment of the, the flammability of the building materials, then obviously timber is inherently flammable. But that that said, you know, <laughs> with with the right treatment in the right place and the right certification, then. Yeah. Does it pose the risk that you might think it is? And it gets back to the, it's not just about the regulatory regime around uh, the building regs itself, but it's about the certification of all the materials and making sure that when they are certified, they're certified in a way that marries up with how it's going to be put on the building on site as well. And that's kind of a bit of the the Grenfell world, wasn't it? Where you, you have to have, you had the tests in the laboratory, but it was in a very purist kind of way where yeah. in reality, that's not how they put on the building. So it's making sure that it's going back to the, so I suppose the point, isn't it? It's making sure that you, you use the right measures and you don't compromise the integrity of the fabric of the building in, in, in doing so. Yeah. On the, on the timber versus steel uh, debate, I, I'm minded to think of Ed Begley Jr., who we spoke with last summer, Jeff. Who, oh, yeah. He built his house with a steel frame, which had a higher embodied carbon effect on his, was it a platinum lead house? He, he didn't have the embodied carbon assessed, but his lead doesn't require embodied carbon calculation. The top of the US Green Building Hence's top sustainability rating system doesn't even require to calculate, never mind his target. <laughs> but he he went with the steel frame, even though its uh, carbon credentials might be less advantageous than timber yeah. frame, because his house was built in an area that was prone to wildfire. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, you shouldn't be building houses, basically. <laughs> so he'd only have to build the steel frame once, rather yeah. than have to keep rebuilding the house from scratch every time. So again, it comes down to the right measure in the right, right place. Right places, yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. really complicated, though, as well. You know, and the thing is, you need, uh, you know, uh, there are absolutely strong arguments you can make about timber-based approaches to construction that um, uh, around, uh, uh, you know, doing everything that you need them to do from a performance perspective in a fire, even using um, timber-based kind of uh, incidents and so on. Um, uh, I've seen the kind of, uh, it's a very glib kind of example, but products like cellulose, because when it's from recycled newspaper insulation, there's loads of kind of, uh, if you ever hold a, a blower torch to, to cellulose, it doesn't catch. Um, uh, there's an ash kind of created, I think, uh, I think by, by the material, which, which starves the... the of oxygen, I think that sounds pseudoscience, but there you go. Um, but uh, it's 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 about uh, the, the issue really applies in you know very tall buildings uh, because the fire engines need to be able to get access in the, in, in, so that people can escape. And we shouldn't be building very tall buildings anyway from a sustainability perspective. Um, so uh, when you when you do the assessments, I know that's uh, you know uh, people will think I'm away with the fairies uh, in this regard. You know uh, to, to suggest that it's Great Britain and and, and very tall multi stories shouldn't be existing. But when you do whole life carbon calculations, they they don't tend to stack up for a bunch of reasons. You know, um, ranting. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. And then you kind of think of the, in the commercial space. So you, you your commercial buildings are obsolete after what? 30 years, 40 years. Well, yeah, we, we don't need them anyway because we're working from home. Working from home, yeah. So take it down, rebuild, you know. So, uh... so um, I can see we're sort of approaching, we're not far off the hour, so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll try and cram everything in. We mentioned climate change or uh, the change of weather patterns earlier. And I'm really curious as to whether that's featuring in your thinking in terms of risk management evaluations. Like we bought this house last year and i there was one that was perfect perfect form factor 
for retrofitting. Could have got EWI all around it, no trouble. But it was in a dip in a town off the coast where Jesus wept. It has rained constantly since we moved here. We had our first day of sun, proper sunshine last week, uh, week before that. No, last week, and it was glorious. But yeah, I just wouldn't touch that in that dip because it just doesn't feel right. Yeah. How much is that figuring into your guys' thinking now? I mean, it's kind of, you are scanning horizon, scanning, so, you know, what's the future risk? Well, what's the future? You know, we're, we're providing value evaluation today and, you know, where's the future claim going to come from? So what do we need to think about? But, but equally, you're also thinking about from a valuation perspective, you you reflecting what somebody's going to buy for the property today, essentially. Yeah. So will will somebody pay four hundred thousand pounds, for example, for for the property in the dip, or will, will they pay less, or will they not pay it at all? So is is the property in a in a way which is mortgageable? That's kind of what you're doing in the yeah. in the mortgage file file world. Are you always necessarily saying, well, every property is going to be worth less now because of that? No, you're not, but you are. It, it, it's a thought process we're going through where do we need to start thinking about that from a risk perspective going forward? Um, do lenders need to start thinking about it going forward? Do they need to be looking at sort of their risk appetite for, for lending against certain types of properties or certain loan to values as well? Mm. Um, it, I would say the best way to encapsulate sort of the thought process is that it, it's 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 there, it's been spoken about, it's been thought about, it hasn't quite moved to the next stage, which is you, you're blighting property because you don't want to blight property. Um, yeah. You, know, you want to make sure that you're reflecting the correct risk at the right time. Well, I hadn't thought of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> in that context, sort of things like... Um, uh, like overheating. I'm thinking of um, many years ago, I went in to meet uh, the facility manager uh, of a, a big bank, Citibank actually, um, in Dublin on the Keys. It was a big, typical modernist glass building, you know, and uh, there was a large swathe of the building. I remember I was being blinded by, uh, by the glare in part of it. Large swathes of the building that are just not used for big chunks of the year. Um, because of the heat and the glare, you know. Um, and we've seen stories in, in the Irish media recently of some well-heeled uh, apartment owners uh, near in 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 um, Ballsbridge, uh, uh, fancy part of Dublin. Um, I think trying to take legal action against their developer for overheating problems um, in uh, in you know south south facing south west facing glassy apartments, you know. Um, and we've seen similar. I've I've done on many times about a scheme in London that we wrote about that achieved. Uh, an unheated, uh, unoccupied uh, apartments achieved operative temperatures of 47 and a half degrees. Um, <laughs> uh, 47 and a half degrees when it was like less than 29 outside. It was warm enough, uh, but not warranting you would not, you wouldn't expect those kinds of temperatures, you know? So, so does that come into it all? Is there anything? You know, yeah, you know, you, you're, you're sold again to that extent, then you're going to have to cool the building down. So when when we talk about okay, that's you sold again positively, but actually you've got a situation where you sold again is so great, then you're going to have to air condition the building to make it satisfactory to, to live in. So it, it becomes a situation where actually does the does the viability of that building at that price is it altered to the point where your valuation starts to be affected? And then I suppose it gets back to 
is the EPC the mechanism that's going to tell you? Well, well, we know the answer there. So it's it, it's kind of, but but you you are going to see more buildings which are going to get warmer and warmer and warmer, and therefore the way we build buildings is going to have to change, isn't it? Because the climate is naturally changing, and it kind of brings you on to the uh, the the big sort of test warehouse at Salford University, which is fan, which is fantastic for building. Yeah. You, you can heat it, cool it to wherever it's going to be, and you can start to see how buildings are going to perform in 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 the way that the the climate's going to change for us and for other parts of the world. It's going to get well, warm, it's going to get wetter. Are they going to? Is, are the bricks going to cope with that type thing? Isn't that? And yeah. Or if you dry line a, a brick building, for instance, a single leaf brick building. I mean, we published articles in this second. 15 years ago or more, um, showing that uh, if you have too much insulation uh, between the room, the heating system in the room and the wall, you could be dropping the temperatures behind the insulation so much that you've got all of a sudden the mold problem. Yeah. There. And you could be getting uh, on a brick building uh, lots of frost thaw cycles hitting the building, hitting that brick within one day. And because you, because it's, you know, getting Temperature is varying a lot from the outside, you know, on a cloudy day that where the sun breaks out and so on. Um, and then you've got um, uh, you don't have heat loss coming into the brick from the from the room size um, anymore in, in any meaningful way to kind of keep the temperature of the brick building be stable. It gets spalling; the brick starts crumbling. Yeah. You know? um, then, then you, you sort of you put think about the external wall. You get external wall insulation on the outside, but it's not put on the outside properly, so it creates because bridging and curl spots and so on and so forth. So actually, then you 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 put in something on a building which, in its purest sense, is exactly the right thing to do. But the, but the way it's been put onto the building compromises the building in a way that you've never expected, which gets you back to making yeah, yeah. sure making sure like you know we know what we're doing and the right people are giving giving the advice at the right time. And then yeah, we've got to. Consider that bad work risks diminishing the asset's value, not just uh, making it crumble. <laughs> yeah, and also the confidence, you know, the confidence in the whole topic. You know, it's it's it, there has to be longevity of policy making. There has to be coherent, consistent policy making, and people feel confident that if they're going to invest so heavily in certain measures, that it's going to last, it's going to work, um, it's going to do exactly what you want it to do as well. And you have, yeah. But what I would want to see is that uh, so the fear is a lot of these issues, they don't need, you know, uh, 2050 climate change scenarios to, to happen. They're already happening, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and then you get to, uh, to compound a problem like the overheating one, for instance. You get the, the, the bullish thing now in, our, in, in Ireland, uh, I'm sure it's the same in the UK, is the, the architect designed the extension with the double height, fully glazed space with no opening windows. That's a disaster from an overheating perspective. It's a <laughs> you know, so uh, that should be something. You know, uh, for, for instance, from a surveyor perspective, it just feels to me like there's a, there's going to be a need to train up the people who are doing this work in these kinds of basics, so that they can spot um, potential problems, potentially significant problems, um, and, uh, and 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 advise accordingly. You know, um, that. Uh, it's a lot to ask for, I know, um, but it feels to me like there's, there's ways now, there's enough people out there who are at the coalface, uh, you know, to, uh, who've done amazing work, uh, very nerdy kind of work to understand how buildings are actually working, how attempts at low energy building and, and, and other 
social building or, or working or not. Um, and just having a way to feed that into the kind of advice that's more generally given. Uh, it feels like that's a critical component, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. Education at this point is key for the lenders, for the surveyors, for the buyers, for everyone in the, the whole, every stakeholder in the chain needs more. And there's so many people in the food chain who are doing really good work with lots of data, lots of information. Bring it all together. Let's bring it all together so we we can access it. We can make decisions knowing everything. Yeah, you, yeah, you're right. You're right. Make it digestible, you know, so that yeah. so that it doesn't make people uh, fall asleep. You know, well, folk yeah. don't like sharing data. If they've yeah. captured it, they want to keep it to themselves. And people don't create stored or don't capture data in a way that's interoperable. So even if they could share it, you'd need to take it through a process of harmonization. And no one within the built environment likes having their homework marked. <laughs> no one. So it's this is something that we're. No, I mean, there we're are some. Students. There's there's the there's the the nerdy students, you know, the front of the glass. They, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, all right, yeah. There are occasional and there are firms that do it for a living so there must be uh yeah. there must be some demand but on a macro level i mean we're it's the know, it's the cool kids at the back of the class that they're the people we've got to try and grapple with you know yeah yeah ironically smoking yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> yeah we're working on a, a few projects to try and bring some of these things together to to help people be, begin to grapple with these issues, you know, because I mean, for these, for some of these things that we're doing, there just isn't the demand at the moment. Because if there was, someone would have already done it. And what you've described, John, is in the valuation trade, it is a market-driven trade, fundamentally, essentially, intrinsically, it is. And if the market isn't demanding it yet, and the market's still thinking quarter to quarter rather than the next 15 years. Well, you're not going to get any movement. But it's very positive to hear that there are people thinking about these things. Like it is entering the conversation. I think it will gain. I think the direction, the trajectory of interest is is steep. I think it's been sort of spoken about, but I think you, know, you will see it impacting. And I think you'll see it from a valuation perspective, from a lending perspective. I think you'll see it intensify quite quickly. Is my, yeah. my take on it. All right. Well, that's a magnificent summary. Let's take the opportunity to say thank you very much for joining us today. Um, yeah, is there any, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything uh, you've got to plug or anything like that that you might want to tell people about? Webinars, promos, reports, white papers? No, not so. um, there's a couple of products. I'll check, I'll check whether we want them plugging or not. But, uh, I All don't right. think so. I don't think so. No problem. Um, well, yeah. Um, all right. Um, well, thank you for listening. What do we normally say at this point, Jeff? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, please review the podcast. It makes a difference. Five stars, toxic positivity, as Jeff puts it. Um, please share it. If you're enjoying this or get something out of it, you probably know someone else who will as well. Uh, so please do. And uh, yeah, thank you for joining us. And we'll we'll see you at the next one we put out.